Psalm 139 is a passage we looked at last week. It's the passage we're going to land on this morning in a couple of minutes. Uh, Along the way, I'll put a few other scriptures on the screen, but I would like you to find Psalm 139 in your copy of the scriptures. Uh, There are notes in the outline. You can track along with some of the things that we're going to talk about this morning as we think about the omnipresence of God. Uh, Here at the beginning of a new year, we're just taking a month of Sundays to think about who God is and what God is like. We're talking about his character. We started the year off in 2020 this way. Uh, We talked about God's holiness, his self-existence, his sovereignty, goodness, faithfulness, power, patience, wrath, and love. This year, we're spending four weeks talking about his omniscience, his omnipresence, that's this morning, his eternity, and his wisdom. I'm going to start with a quote from a man named James Boyce. James Boyce is the founder of and first president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He started the school in South Carolina. It had to close during the Civil War. They moved it to Louisville, Kentucky. He wrote a book about theology called Abstract of Systematic Theology, and Boyce says this, God is present everywhere. He is present at one and the same time everywhere. Grammatically, that's not that complicated of a sentence. It's not that hard for you to read and take in. When you actually begin to think about what he's saying, it is a marvelous, mind-aching thought that God is present everywhere. Uh, I want to reference one more theologian, A.W. Tozer. This morning I called him A.W. Pink, but it's A.W. Tozer. It's easy to get the A.W.s mixed up. A.W. Tozer Uh, In his book, Knowledge of the Holy, he talks about the um, omnipresence of God, and he says, there is so much biblical evidence that suggests that God is everywhere present, you have to work really hard to get this idea wrong. If you want to deny that God is present everywhere, you're going to have to really work hard to miss it in the scriptures, because it shows up over and over again and over again. And so this morning, we want to work hard not to miss what the text says, but to get what the text says as we think about the omnipresence of God. So we'll start with the definition, omnipresence defined. Last week, we talked about this root, this Latin root, omni, it means all or every. And so when we talk about God's omnipresence, we simply mean that he is present everywhere. God is present everywhere. He's present everywhere, and this is a subset, really, of what theologians would call his infinitude. God's omnipresence is a subset of the idea that he is infinite. It's part of his infinitude. Now, I'm a visual guy, and so you start to talk about omniscience and omnipresence and eternity and infinitude, and my mind breaks down pretty quick. Let me just give you a a simple schematic that might help you think about this. When we say that God is infinite, what we're saying is that he does not have the kind of limits that we have as human beings. Specifically, as human beings, we are limited in terms of space and time. We can be in one place at one time. You might think of the country song by a guy named uh, Zach Brown. He says, I wish I could be in two places at one time. And he writes in the song about, I like traveling the roads and seeing all the great things that I've seen as a musician traveling all over the world, but I also like to be home with my family 
and I just wish that I could be two places at one time. You can't. About the closest we come is what Bernie Sanders has done over the last week and all the memes and pictures that you've seen. We've put Bernie all over the place, right? He's been everywhere, all sorts of times, all sorts of places. But what we really know is that he was actually in one place at one time. He was at the inauguration, and he had his mittens and his jacket and his legs crossed and his arms folded, and I assume a sour look on his face underneath that mask. One place, one time. That's how it works for human beings. That's not how it works for God. He is not finite. He's infinite. He transcends what we experience in terms of space and time. When you think about God's infinitude in relation to space, that's where we talk about his omnipresence. He is not limited. He is not bound to be in only one place at one time. When we think about his infinitude in terms of time, we talk about God being eternal, his eternality. We experience these limits of space and time, one place, one time. God transcends these categories as the creator, the one who created space, the heavens and the earth, the one who created time on the first day, on the second day, on the third day, on the fourth day. He created these things. He exists outside of these things. He's not bound by these things the way we are. So look, when I say to you, God is present everywhere, you say, got it. Let's move on to the next attribute. But when you actually stop and as a finite creature try to take in what does it mean that God is omnipresent, it's a remarkable, remarkable thought. Let me try to chip away a few things just for the sake of clarity, things that uh, could trip us up if we're not careful. Firstly, omnipresence, God's omnipresence, it does not exclude special manifestations of his presence. So when we say that God is everywhere, that does not mean that he can't manifest or reveal himself at a particular place, at a particular time, in a special way. These are all throughout the Old Testament. We call them theophanies. Theophanies. Let me give you just a couple of examples to think about. In the book of Genesis, Genesis 3, we read that the Lord God had been walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. Well, where was he? Was he just there in the garden walking with Adam and Eve, or was he everywhere? And the answer is yes. He's present everywhere, but that was a special manifestation of his presence. Genesis 15, the Lord God appears and has a conversation with Abraham. He appears to Abraham. He talks to Abraham in a special way. In that moment, he didn't cease to be everywhere. It was just a special manifestation of his presence. We'll read from Genesis 28 later. There's a man named Jacob. He was in the wilderness. He laid down to go to sleep. He put his head on a rock. When he woke up in the morning, he realized, I'm not alone. The Lord is in this place in a special way special manifestations of God's presence all throughout the book of Genesis, all throughout the book of Exodus. You can think about Exodus 3. Moses experiences a theophany at the burning bush. The Lord appears to him in a special, unique way at a particular place, at a particular time. He's still present everywhere, but he's manifest his presence 
in a unique way. Exodus 12, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire that guide the people out of Egypt and through the promised land. It was a special manifestation of God's presence. Exodus 40, they build the tabernacle. The Lord God comes and he lives in this tent, in this tabernacle. He manifests his presence in a remarkable way. He doesn't cease to be everywhere else. He is present everywhere but he manifests his presence in a special way in these moments. These are hard to think about. Our small brains just kind of start to malfunction and you get the the equivalent of the blue screen of death when you try to process some of this stuff. But it's certainly true in these Old Testament theophanies. It's also true in the fullest sense in the incarnation. Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1 tell us that Jesus is Emmanuel which means God with us. You read that and you don't roll your eyes and say, well, he's everywhere. Of course he's with us. He's with us wherever I go. You read that and you say, what a remarkable truth that the God who is everywhere present manifests himself, his real presence in the person of Jesus Christ in a unique, miraculous way without ceasing to be present everywhere else during the incarnation is a remarkable, remarkable thought. So it does not exclude special manifestations of his presence. Secondly, omnipresence of God is not the same as pantheism. It's not the same as pantheism. This is where we need to be really careful with vocabulary. Listen, when I say to you that God is omnipresent, I mean God is everywhere. The pantheist says, God is everything. Those are entirely different statements. The biblical worldview, the Christian worldview, says God is present everywhere. There is no place where you can escape his presence. He is everywhere present. The pantheist, the worldview underlying Hinduism, for example, says that God is everything. Some of you are old enough to remember an actress named Shirley MacLaine. She used to go on TV and she used to drive people nuts because she would say very boldly and confidently, this is what she would say, not me, her, I am God. She would say it and people would just lose their mind. And they would say, it was so patently ridiculous, Christian people would say it's so ridiculous that you, Shirley MacLaine, are not the God of the Bible, the one true living God. I don't want to defend Shirley MacLaine, but she wasn't claiming to be the one true God of the Bible. This was sort of a new agey pantheistic statement where what she was saying is, everything is God and I'm part of everything. You're God, I'm God, the chair's God, the floor's God, the building's God, your dog is God. We're all God. That's pantheism. God is everything. That's not what we're talking about. The biblical worldview, rooted in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, is that there's a distinction between the creator and the creation. God is not everything, but his omnipresence means that he is everywhere. One more thing to chop off here. The omnipresence of God does not mean that God fills up creation. You're not to think of the universe and say, well, God is right-sized to just sort of fill it up in all the nooks and crannies. Look what we read in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 8, 27. This is Solomon 
who has built a house, a temple, for the Lord to live in. And Solomon, as he's praying at the dedication of this building, is reflecting on how utterly ridiculous it is to think that the infinite God would dwell in this building. And this is what he says. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Right? This is a man wrestling with the fact that God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere. And he's been instructed to build this house where the presence of God will be manifest in a special way. And he knows that the Lord is going to come and live with his people in this temple just as he's lived in the tabernacle. But he steps back and he looks at the big picture and he thinks, well, this is really silly. The infinite God not only fills up this little building of bricks that we've made, but the heavens and the highest heaven cannot at all contain him. You are not to think about God filling creation like you fill your drink at Rosa's, right? You put it under the Dr. Pepper spout and you push the thing back and the Dr. Pepper fills up and then you stop and you say, oh, it's full. That's what liquid does. It just fills the object that you put it in. That's not what we mean when we talk about God's omnipresence. It's not just that he fills up the creation. It's that he is the creator who exists above and beyond what has been created, He's infinite, and in his infinitude, he is present everywhere. Now, let's ask some questions. Let's just think about if we really believe what the Bible says here in some specific examples. These questions, I think, get harder as you move along. Four questions. Question number one, what about everyday life? Everyday life. Do you mean to tell me that in my everyday, boring, mundane, routine life that God is everywhere, that I never escape his presence, even when I don't see him or sense him or feel him or have any awareness that he's around? Are you telling me even in the boringest moments of my life that the creator of the universe is there? And the answer is yes. It's exactly what the Bible says. And the Bible says it's actually really good news that he is there because in Colossians 1 we read that in him, in Jesus, all things are held together. And in Hebrews 1 we read that he is actually upholding the universe by the word of his power. There would be no everyday life, much less life, if God were not present everywhere, holding it all together, upholding the universe that he created. He's there even in the moments of everyday life where you don't know that he's there. Say, okay, what about suffering? Do you mean to tell me in the moments where I'm struggling and hurting and angry and frustrated and discouraged, in the moments where my gut instinct is to say, God, I wish you were with me. God, will you please be with me? Are you telling me that in those moments God is already with me? Yes, that's what the Bible says. And the great example of this is in the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. He's hauled off to Egypt in a slave caravan. Genesis 39, 1 and 2 reminds us that even when he had been brought down to Egypt, the Lord was with him. I can't imagine the suffering of being sold into slavery by your own family, being hauled into a foreign country, and the text just reminds us, look, When they hauled him out of the quote-unquote promised land, the Lord was with him. 
when he showed up in Egypt, the Lord was with him. He didn't leave him. God didn't get caught in customs going to Egypt. He was with him. Later, after things have kind of gone his way, he's falsely accused of assault and he's wrongfully imprisoned and punished for something that he didn't do. When he did the right thing, he's punished for doing the wrong thing. And you say, man, what a tough break. If only God would have been around. Well, the text says, guess what? The Lord was around. The Lord was with him. Even when he wound up in prison, people lied about him. People slandered him. People accused him of something he never even thought about doing. The Lord was with him. Even in your suffering, the Lord is present. You say, okay, what about the cross? What about the cross? We think about a passage like Matthew 27 where Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sometimes we talk about Jesus dying on the cross and we begin to talk about the Father turning away or the Father looking away. But it's not that God wasn't present at the cross. God was certainly present. Paul makes that clear in Romans 3 where he says, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, was put forward by God, that's the Father, as a propitiation by his blood. It's a big Bible word, but it's an important Bible word, and it means when Jesus died on the cross as a propitiation, God himself was pouring his wrath and his anger out on God the Son. So it was God present at the cross. Yes, Jesus quoted Psalm 22. We know that. There was a forsakenness. But it wasn't that God vacated the premises of Calvary. It's not that God ceased to be on the hill of Golgotha. God was present. God the Son was dying for our sins. God the Father was pouring out his wrath on the Son who was dying as the propitiation for our sins. Look, this is not just an academic thing to debate and argue about. We can debate it and we can't argue about it. This is the heart of the gospel, Jesus dying on the cross. The Father was there at the cross pouring his wrath out and his anger out on the Son so that it would not be poured out on me and on you. He was present. Lastly, you say, well, what about hell? What about hell? Surely he's not present in hell. Maybe you think about a verse like Isaiah 59 that says your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And you see, see, there it is. There's a separation. You're over here with your sin and God's over there. Maybe you think about what Paul says to the Thessalonians when he talks about unbelievers facing eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. That's a pretty strong statement. Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. If you keep reading what Paul says in that passage, I don't think he means that God isn't present in hell. I think what he goes on to say is away from the presence of the Lord in his glory. God is present in the afterlife, everywhere present. In heaven, he's present in his glory, in his goodness, in his grace, and in his mercy. And in hell, he's present in his wrath, in his fury, in his anger. There are a number of passages like the one you read in Amos 9. Amos makes a contrast between Sheol and heaven. Heaven, the afterlife that you want to go to. Sheol, the afterlife you don't want to go to. This is what Amos says. The Lord speaking through the prophet says, Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them will escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them up. You cannot escape from me 
in hell. The Lord will find you. You cannot escape his presence. If they climb up to heaven, from there I'll bring them down. He's talking about his enemies and judging his enemies. I'll command the sword, it will kill them. I'll fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. There's a number of passages throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that talk about the presence of the Lord in hell, not for good and glory and grace and mercy, but for wrath and for judgment. And sometimes I think we get confused about this. We get confused about hell and we start to think that Satan is in charge of hell. He's not. He doesn't run hell. We think about hell and we think, oh, that's the place where the demons are making life miserable for everyone. No, no, no. That's where life is being made miserable for the demons. They're not torturing people in hell. Sometimes we think about hell and all we can think about is the darkness or the fire or the flames or the whatever. Here's the worst part about hell is that the wrath of God is eternally poured out on his enemies. We've sinned against an infinitely holy God, and what we deserve is an eternal hell where his wrath and his anger are infinitely poured out upon us. He's present in the everyday, ordinary moments. He's present in your suffering. Thank God he was present at the cross, pouring out his wrath and his mercy on the Son so that we could have a hope of an eternity that does not involve his wrath and his judgment being poured out on us. Here's the truth. Psalm 139, we cannot escape the presence of God. We cannot escape the presence of God. Look at Psalm 139. David wrote this psalm. He's thinking about the bigness of God, the infinitude of God. He's thinking about his omniscience. We saw that last week. He's thinking about his omnipresence. We see that starting in verse 7. Here's the question that he poses in this section of the psalm. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? He is thinking theoretically about the omnipresence of God and he's asking himself, where can I go to get away from God? And he just starts to list off some of the possibilities. Verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. You say, yeah, I knew that. But he's just being thorough, right? If I go up to the heavens, God is already there. If I make my bed in Sheol, and again, notice the contrast, up to heaven, down to Sheol. If I go down to Sheol, to the grave, to hell, well, guess what? You are there. So we've gone all the way from heaven, all the way down to hell. He says he's there. If I take the wings of the morning... And dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Have you ever stood on the beach and just looked at the ocean and thought about how big it is? If you've been to the ocean, you've probably done that. A couple of times in my life, I've stood on South Point, Hawaii. There is nothing between South Point, Hawaii, and the South Pole but water. And you stand there and you look out and you think, that's a lot of water. It's an awful lot of water. Maybe if I went to the end of the sea, maybe God wouldn't be there. David says, well, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Well, that's not going to work. We've gone to heaven. We've gone to hell. We've gone to the ends of the ocean. Verse 11 is the toddler possibility. 
If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, right? This is the kid in the nursery saying, I can't see you. Maybe you can't see me. Turn the lights off, and maybe I can find a place to hide, and you won't know where I'm at, right? I can't see you. It's dark. Well, verse 12, even the darkness isn't dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is a light with you. So we've gone to heaven, we've gone down to hell, we've gone to the ends of the ocean, we've turned the lights off. Verse 13, we're in the womb now. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And he transitions from God's omnipresence to his omniscience, and he just responds in worship. You can't escape the presence of the omnipresent God. This is why Elijah made fun of the prophets of Baal. Remember 1 Kings 18, prophets of Baal are dancing around and cutting and screaming and acting like crazy people. And Elijah says, essentially, I guess he's not omnipresent. Maybe he's not here because he's there on the bathroom, on the toilet. He's over there. He can't be here because he's there. Maybe he can only be one place at one time. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he went far from home. Sorry, he's not available to send fire on your offering because he's gone somewhere else. This is a difference between the false gods, the pagan gods, and the one true God who is present everywhere. It's something that one of the prophets of God tried to deny. He literally, when you read the book of Jonah, he literally tried to run away, to flee from the presence of the Lord. And he took the option, we just read it in Psalm 139, what if I go to the end of the ocean, right? He didn't try the heaven or the grave or the turn the lights off thing. He just said, what if I go to the end of the ocean? Maybe then I can get away from the presence of the Lord. So he went. And when he went, he realized the Lord's already there. I cannot escape his presence. I can't escape his presence. You can't escape his presence. We cannot escape the presence of God. Wayne Grudem puts a bow on it. He says, there is nowhere in the entire universe on land or sea, heaven or hell, where one can flee from God's presence. If this is true, it ought to make a difference in our lives. We ought not live like people who think that God can be limited to one place at one time. What difference should this make in our lives? Let me give you a few thoughts. Number one, we should feel awe. Awe. When we think about how big God is, when we think about God's infinitude, when we think about the fact that there is no place in the universe we can go to escape his presence, we ought to be reminded that God is not like us. It's easy for us to just slip into thinking that God is like us just bigger. He's like us, just stronger. He's like us, he just knows more. The reality is that God is holy. He's not like us, and he is present everywhere. And when you think about that, it ought to make you feel awe. Jeremiah gives us a helpful reminder. The Lord speaking 
to Jeremiah through Jeremiah. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Meaning, Jeremiah, do you think I'm only with you when you feel close? Or do you not think that I'm even with you when I'm far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? There is no place, Jeremiah, where you will escape my presence. When you think about that, it just ought to make you feel awe. Second, we should be careful with the categories of secular and sacred. You may not use those words, but you probably use those categories in your mind regularly. You look at someone like me and you say, preacher, you have a sacred job. It has to do with God. I have a secular job. I teach kindergarten. Trust me, it's secular. Or I work in an office. Believe me, the people I work with are secular. Or you know, I stay at home in the kitchen or I do whatever. I work out in the oil field. Believe me, it's secular. If God's present everywhere... He's certainly present here in the office when I work on a sermon, but he's also present with you in the classroom and in the office and at home and in the oil field. It's not like you go places where he is not. I was around some people this last week who used some really foul language, really, really foul. They didn't know me. They certainly didn't know what I did for a living or what I do for a living, And I know this from experience. If they knew what my job was, they probably would have got red in the face and said, oh, don't don't talk like that. He's probably never heard those words. Don't say it. Why would they feel that way? It's because there's this sense of sacred and secular, right? I would be willing to bet that all those people I listen to spew all this filth, I would be willing to bet a paycheck that if they walked in this room, they wouldn't say any of that stuff. They would have some sense of, you shouldn't say those things here. Why? It's because they think of this as a a sacred place. It's because there's some sense of God is here, but he's not out there. They may not be willing to describe it that way, but that's how they're living. God is here in this place, so you better straighten up. But when you're out there, yeah, yeah, it's okay. Sacred, secular. I think we need to be careful with those distinctions. If we really believe that the Lord is with us wherever we go, it ought to change the way that we talk, the way that we think, the way that we act when we're in this room, by all means, but also when we're outside of this room. Thirdly, how should we live in light of God's omnipresence? We should rejoice in the salvation that Jesus secured at the cross. Look what Paul says in Galatians 3.13. He's talking about the cross and a curse. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, he quotes the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You understand the curse that Paul's talking about in Galatians 3 is not like a jinx of the devil. This curse is a parallel back to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve rebel against the Lord and a curse falls on creation. It's God's anger. It's his wrath. It's his judgment. It's his fury being poured out and directed towards sinful people. Paul says that's what happened on the cross. The Lord was present. He was present in his wrath and his judgment. 
to pour his anger out on Jesus as the propitiation for our sins so that we do not have to experience that wrath and that anger and that judgment for eternity. When you start to put together the dots of how the omnipresence of God fits into what Jesus accomplished on the cross and the hope that we have for an eternity that is not marked by God's unending fury, you ought to rejoice. Last, we should practice the presence of God. I'll let you look at Acts 17. Paul's preaching in Athens. He's talking to non-Christian people and he says to them, we know that in God we live and we move and we have our being, our existence, and he is not far from any of us. He's talking about God's omnipresence. You cannot escape his presence. If that's true, we should practice the presence of God. I want to tell you about somebody named Brother Lawrence. I told you I got Tozer mixed up with pink. I got Brother Lawrence mixed up with Brother Andrew this morning, so now I get to set the record straight. Brother Lawrence grew up in France in the early 1600s. Grew up in a very, very poor family, so poor that they didn't have enough to eat many times, and so when he was old enough as a teenager, he joined the army so that he could have a hot meal and he could have clothes and a place to stay. While he was in the army, he had this experience, and this experience led him to think that he should join a a monastery, that he should become a monk. And so he went to this monastery, and uh, it's a Carmelite monastery in Paris. That's the the monastery you can visit it today. Showed up, uh, early 1600s. He said, hey, I want to be a monk. I want to leave my life of being a a soldier behind, and I want to live a life fully devoted and committed to God. And they said, great, we're glad you're here. Uh, Forget your birth name. We're now going to call you Brother Lawrence. You're going to be known as Brother Lawrence, and he was so excited. He was ready to live a life devoted to serving God and communing with God, and they said upon his arrival, we're going to send you to the kitchen, and we'd like you to fix dinner. And when dinner's done, we'd like you to clean it up. And in the morning, we'd like to have breakfast, and you're going to fix it, and then you're going to clean it. Uh, At lunch, we'd like you to fix lunch tomorrow, and then clean it when you're done. And then we want to have dinner again tomorrow night. And then every day, for the rest of the time that you're here at the monastery, that's what we want you to do. Fix our food, and then clean it up. And Brother Lawrence thought, well, that's not really why I'm here. I came to be close to the Lord, get away from the secular stuff and do some sacred things. I thought I might spend the day praying. No, you're going to cook and clean. Well, when would you like me to preach? We don't want you to preach. We want you to cook and clean. Just get in the kitchen. You have KP. When you want to leave, you can leave. As long as you're here, you have KP. So he went to the kitchen and he fixed dinner and then he fixed breakfast and he fixed lunch and dinner again and he cleaned it all up and he just did it over and over and over again. And before long, he realized, because God is omnipresent, he's not just present in the cathedral, he's also present in the kitchen. And he said, I need to learn to practice the presence of God in what he called the ordinary business of life. It's the ordinary business of life. He came to understand that he could experience and live in light of God's omnipresence, not just at the altar but also at the sink. I'm going to practice the presence of God 
in the ordinary business of life. Listen, the call for you is not to say, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to run off and join a monastery or I'm going to quit my job and I'd like to join the church staff and sit in the office all day where the Lord is more present than the schoolroom or my house. The call on your life and the call on my life is to realize that everywhere we go, we're in the Lord's presence. There is nowhere that we can go to escape his presence. And if that's true, we ought to learn to practice the presence of God in the ordinary business of life. Look, that includes Sunday morning worship when we sit in this room and we feel like we're in a a sacred place for a sacred purpose. That also includes lunch when you leave. You've not left the presence of the Lord. That includes this afternoon when you're home. Guess what? He'll be there with you. Tomorrow morning when you go to that kindergarten class or that office or that lease road somewhere, guess what? He'll be with you. You learn to practice the presence of God in the ordinary moments of life. He's there in everyday life. He's there in our suffering. We have hope as Christian people because he was there at the cross pouring his wrath on the sun so that it would not fall on us. We learn to practice the presence of God in this room and out of this room.